I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pilsen Community Books. This is I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Jeremy Kitchen, Michael Sack, and please give a very, very big Chicago welcome to a former Chicago native now in Detroit, Miss Ann Elizabeth Moore. Thank you for welcoming me back. So we want to start out tonight. Anne is here uh, in support of her new book, Body Horror. And we have had Anne on the show before. Anne, for those people that don't know, Anne uh, is a longtime former Chicago resident. She worked at Quimby's. She was involved with Punk Planet. She's been published all over the place. Her new book, um, I want to start off kind of by talking about what it is for people that don't know or haven't read it yet. Uh, but when we were talking about it, it was an exploration of capitalism. I also want to add, she was the editor of Punk Planet, not involved. So, I mean, that's a pretty... That's well, I mean, she was involved with Punk Planet. Yeah, come on, I mean, come on. Intimately yeah. involved she was intimately involved aspect. with Punk Planet. <laughs> but her book is, is an exploration of, and correct me if I'm wrong, just slap me in, horror movies, capitalism, and how capitalism affects women's bodies in particular. Yeah, women's bodies in entertainment, um, labor, and in the medical industrial complex. And, of course, this is something that I think is very um, pertinent right now, especially since we've had a very long and ugly discussion of health care in mm. the United States with uh, our Senate uh, voting and then not voting to withdraw health care. And, and you speak quite uh, eloquently and quite often in your new book about the trials and tribulations of the American health care system. And I wondered if you could start here and kind of maybe take us through what your take on um, this less than effective system is, has been for you. Yeah, but I'm not supposed to swear. Is that what the yes. deal is? Yes, this is a, this okay. is a radio broadcast, and unfortunately, you cannot swear. Uh, much as much as we would understand. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Do you have thirty thousand dollars to give the FCC? Um, no. Weirdly, I don't. Howard no. Stern can swear, but we can't. Oh, that so guy unfair. gets everything. <laughs> uh, I mean. That whole thing was crazy. It's crazy. It doesn't make any sense to me. We've finally gotten to the place in this country where we understand that health care is a human right and we're trying to strip it from people. Like, who actually thinks that that is going to get us any, win any favors for the administration? Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm so baffled and frustrated by it. There was the, the last day on Twitter where. Um, they were bringing John McCain in from his you know, sur surgery, and they were discovering the cancer, and he was going to come in, and he was going to vote for the health care thing and then vote against it. And every time I checked Twitter for like 48 hours, my life expectancy changed by several decades. Because if I lose my health care, I have th three or four months. And talks about that in the book, too. Yeah. And I think you uh, basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but... She mentions if the ACA gets overturned, she's going to die, and, and so are a lot of our friends. And I don't think a lot of people realize, you know, um, well, we do. I imagine everyone that's here realizes, but the, um, you know, I got out of the military in 1992, and it was the first time that veterans were allowed to go to VA hospitals um, as veterans just when you were sick. That was passed under Bill Clinton. And I, I'm not saying veterans are any more important than any other human being, but like, I wish that our country looked at people, you know, who are teachers uh, in the arts, police, firemen, the same way that they treat veterans. You know, like we have this um, strange, fake, f 
flag waving rah rah crap that goes on in this country but it's like just because you put a yellow sticker on your car it doesn't mean you support veterans if you support veterans you know you volunteer at a va hospital you vote for legislation that because i've read that there was like several hundred thousand vets that would lose their health care also oh, yeah. if the aca is overturned like, so it's not first just on the chopping block and what's that about yeah yeah so it's it's unfathomable to me and I will reiterate, I don't think vets are any more important than any other human being. Um, but to me, the, the, the dialogue is always about, like, we're for the vets. We're going to protect the vets. The vets, we're going to parade them out on football fields and baseball fields. But then they're like, but sorry, we're going to take away your health care. You know, it's like, like first. Yeah, the first thing. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. So I don't I don't I can't make any sense of it. Sorry. But well, but I mean, that's something you talk about in your book as well. Hypocrisy. A lot of hypocrisy, and, and, you know, I think that's something that we maybe are a little bit um, numb to at this point in time, because there seems to be a great deal of hypocritical behavior, and I'm wondering if you could kind of take this audience through what your kind of take is on why some of these things, first of all, are so hypocritical, and second of all, why so many people have started to kind of ignore that hypocrisy. Well, I mean, yeah. I've, I've lost the ability to really understand why most people do anything. I think through the healthcare debates, I, it's become totally clear to me that I don't understand what people are talking about anymore at all. Um, but there is kind of an interesting thing happening right now, especially around the diseases that I talk about in particular, which is autoimmune diseases. And there's... Um, they're sort of fascinating medically and, and biologically, and, and they all are rooted in this fundamental misunderstanding of um, microbiology, basically. And, and as we grow to understand more about autoimmune disease and more about the fact that microbes um, have both positive and negative functions in the world and, and also end up contributing to our bodies in a way that is so fundamental that without them we literally can't function. Um, and it's, it's thought more and more these days that actually microbes, um, they don't just sort of control our immune system, but how we process food and how we um, experience allergies and stuff like this, but also teeny little things about like how we care about each other and whether or not we, who we fall in love with. So these, these are all like really, really big questions and, and issues that we clearly don't understand at all. And we've just been on this whole scale attack against microbes since we discovered them. And as autoimmune disease therefore grows, people on an individual basis are realizing that the system doesn't serve people. And autoimmune diseases are now, there's 50 million diagnosed in the, in the United States alone, and they're growing exponentially. There's something like um, some are growing 10% every year, some are merely growing 1% every year, but that's an enormous amount. And people are realizing that they have to sort of disengage from that ever, you know, corporatizing process, this ever sort of self-damaging process because they feel it in their bodies, which is actually kind of hopeful and interesting, even if it means we're all getting really sick. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned autoimmune disorders, microbes, and love, and link them all together. It kind of reminds me of how you write in, in this book in particular. <laughs> like a crazy person? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that I love. Um, Can I just say I didn't know what autoimmune disorder is, but it's when good 
bad, good cells are attacked instead of bad cells, correct? Pretty much all cells, uh, well, they're, they're thought to start when, when all microbes in your, like your autoimmune system is made up of these microbes. And um, when they are all depleted, you don't have the good ones and you don't have the bad ones. But more or less, an autoimmune disease is when then your, your immune system starts attacking um, everything as if it were a bad cell. Yeah. yeah. The white blood cells eat themselves. Yeah. You eat yourself. Yeah. Um, but it reminded me of an interview I saw with you. I think it was Lit Hub. And at the end of it, you had mentioned talking to a friend who is a doctor, I think. And you were talking about what would happen if, if the ACA was repealed, mm-hmm. basically how you would survive. And um, yeah. My she doctor. mentioned some illicit ways, I think. Yeah. Um, is that something you're going to... And that pl- doctor also is at risk of deportation, correct? Yeah. I mean, I don't... I don't really link those things together in that text, but but she is at risk of I think I read it in the interview. And yeah. she's a lesbian and is married to her partner. So she's sort of at risk in all, in all the myriad of ways that you can be at risk in this administration. And in a way that, of course, makes her very sympathetic to the whole. Yeah. But I guess the bottom line that I took away was you found a way to take care of health problems that that you didn't know about before, and there are probably a lot of other people who are in that same boat. Um, are you going to write about what you found out, how to how to get care outside of the system? Well, it's tricky, right? I mean, I come from the underground, where your your intention is to discover and share that stuff, right? So so that other people can experience it. But we are living in an administration that is so punitive and scary that if you share stuff like that, it will disappear and everyone involved will be punished. Like, that's not even a question anymore. We know that's going to happen. I was recently stopped at the border and then 24 hours later was stopped at the border again. Um, And somehow they marked me as sort of extra interesting. And so they they can download your cell phone. So they, they took all of my contacts and all of my text messages, and by the way, the app that me- that tracks my menstrual cycles, um, and they they downloaded it, <laughs> so they have all this crazy information about me because the day before I made a joke about why I was going to this film festival alone. So we know that that we are operating under a system that is extremely dangerous. So I'm not comfortable making that information mm-hmm. public. Mm-hmm. I'm not even comfortable talking about you know, the various medical professionals that are involved that, in a public way. At least. That makes me think of another question I had. I was, re- I was looking back over some of the pieces in body horror, standardization of time. Um, the one on IP, I can't remember the name. Yeah. Um, and, and I started to imagine you as like a kind of super villain in, a, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in like a, a conservative adult swim. You know, she wants to kill time. <laughs> she wants to kill free enterprise. She People are listening. She has to go. She wants to survive and be healthy. <laughs> yeah. uh, she wants to destroy I, the medical profession. And I was like, she has an FBI file for sure. <laughs> for Quarter sure. inch at least. Have you, have you requested it? 
or seen it? Yeah. So the thing about requesting your FBI file is that um, they stopped fulfilling those requests, as I understand it, a couple of decades ago. And so you actually can't get your hands on it anymore. Really? Volman, yeah, it's just Volman backed up with his. all the It's like 700 the pages or stuff. something. Yeah. Like okay. Did I just swear again? No. No. Okay, no. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't hear you it. You never know. <laughs> I, I wanted so. to, going back to that LitHub interview, it, Mike and I reread the book, and, and we read a lot of the interviews regarding the book, and even some of your uh, older works, but... There was, in one of the interviews, you were saying you were visiting a doctor and, and <laughs> you had something wrong with your arm. And he said, you know, here's my arm. And he's like, oh, my, I, I'm not sure if it's a man or a woman. But they're like, oh, my God, that looks like something out of a horror movie. You yeah. know, and you were like, could you just fix my arm, please? You know, what's not. But, I mean, <laughs> when I read that, I laughed, but not because it's ha-ha funny, but it's like, you know, someone is suffering from an illness and, I, you know, it's kind of like the meat market medical approach we have. Like I go to, I, you know, I, I'm fortunate I have good insurance. I, I work for the city and I go for the University of Chicago, but it's like you go in, they slap you, they check, you know, and here's a handful of pills and then they send you on their way. And um, when I read that, it was just like, you know, it's like, is that, you know, that's kind of the feeling, you know, in the, and then we get, you know, from the conservative line of thinking, it's like, we have the best healthcare in the world. And it's not, it's horrible. Yeah. Um, I think the infant mortality rate is like 17th or even, you know, it's a, a, that's a statistic I read a long time ago, so don't quote me on that, but it's, yeah, and mothers it's die not in the top 10. Yeah. More in the United States than anywhere else in the world. And more in where you live now yeah. than anywhere. In, yeah. Anne's living in, in Detroit, which we're going to get to in a little bit. She uh, got a, a, a house through a writer's grant or scholarship? Uh, like a permanent fellowship. Permanent fellowship. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I wanted to kind of pivot a little bit to horror, which, you know, there seems to be a real connection between your takes on the medical profession and your interest also in, in horror films about <laughs> how, and I mean, it, it is horrible, but I mean, how uh, you specifically in this book talk about how women are portrayed in horror films as basically disposable objects. There's a deep-seated misogyny that is present in horror films. And we should make a, a point here that you really enjoy horror films. You like yeah, horror oh films yeah. a lot. You're an avid consumer of it. But your, your criticism of it, uh, if I may be allowed to paraphrase, is that the makers of horror films have never taken women seriously as an object to have a storyline on. And it's very rare to do that. And that is reflective of something that is deeply damaged in our culture, which is also reflected in how we treat people in the medical field. Yep. So if you could take us a little bit through that, because the, you know this is obviously the title of the book is Body Horror. Let's, you're trying to get to that. Um, but your take on horror films is actually really interesting because it, it's something that is a field that is starting, first of all, it's, it's starting to get a lot more attention. Horror films are starting to be taken seriously as an actual thing of study. Mm -hmm. um, the concept of the final girl is something that people are talking about. But I wonder if you could take us through just kind of where you kind of went with this. Well, and to be honest, like a lot of my criticism of horror films just flat out comes from like, I don't know of any that are that scary to me. None of them reflect what I experience as horror in the world. And if they did, wow. Like Get Out came pretty close. And then there are a couple more recently. Raw. Did I? Had I just seen Raw oh, when I was God, yeah. talking yeah. to you guys last night? Did you time? see okay. Martyrs? No, I still haven't yet. Haven't tracked That's it That's a French yet. horror movie. Yeah. And I, I highly recommend it, but... Uh, Bring a barf. Bring a barf. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's it's not only gross, but it, it's 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 not it's only gross. Super it's gross. intense. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, so so what I would be interested in is a, a horror film genre that actually speaks to my experience of what is horror, considering that I can walk into my doctor's office any given day of the week and be like, this happened, and he'll be like, that sounds like a horror movie. And you're like, that's, it's not, well, it's not, you know, like, I've seen all of them, and it's not, actually. Um, but the the experience of becoming some and I mean not to whatever this is radio and maybe some of your listeners will google me but I'm a, a fairly like um like I pass as someone who doesn't have a zillion disabilities and is um sort of structurally sound in all these ways uh, and I got this cute new haircut and it looks great on the radio. Man. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. That's exactly what I'm All of the for. hosts of the show have radio faces, so they <laughs> yeah. can't get on TVs. Yeah. Well, I was on TV, actually. I should, I should oh. correct you on that. Well, Jamie's that the pretty one. Ago. Yeah, I'm the pretty one. Well, so, so the thing is that, you know, it's I'm not like visibly identifiable as someone who has either experienced a lot of horror or has experienced a lot of illness. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is, is sort of being open to the possibility that looks can be deceiving or that, you know, as inexperienced people have a range of issues that um, don't necessarily show up in our visual realm. But what I would very much like as someone who feels comfortable in the realm of horror is to at least have a media that reflects the things that I think are horrible in the world. Because that would, for me, from a sort of media analysis standpoint, at least give me the sense that the world reflected people like me somehow. And, um, and we really don't, I've never been grossed out by any of this stuff. I've never been disgusted. And I'm not trying to brag. But what would it be like if horror movies were about people who woke up one day to find that their their own bodies were attacking themselves so horrifyingly that the medical profession didn't know what to do? And, and that's just not something that we talk about in the realm of horror, and yet millions of people experience that every day. You mentioned something that reminded me of the essay, um, Cultural Imperative. Yeah. You talk in the beginning about having a party trick (laughs) basically being passable as healthy and um normal yeah and getting into discussions with people about not wanting to have children and it and it it takes this other tack that i don't want to get into right now but (laughs) the party trick aspect of it was was interesting to me the way you framed it like that um and it it made me think of this essay that just came out in The Point. I don't know if you've ever read The Point magazine, but the new issue yeah. that just came out, um, a young woman named Sarah Sherman. There's no Sarah Sherman in the crowd, is there? Okay. Um, she she does something called a body horror comedy show. Do, yep. you, do you know about this? She and I have been emailing the last couple of... Oh, okay. Yeah. Weird. Um, well, she, she wrote this essay... Mm-hmm. Um, about her newfound fascination with Jackass, the, the show, and binge-watching it and um, tying that to her own performance. And uh, I had the page marked, but Jeremy just... <laughs> <laughs> um, 
She meant that's okay. Um, she says something at the end um, that I wanted to read out loud and ask you about. It says the combination of shock and humor and gross-out comedy creates a whiplash effect. At first, it terrifies and repels viewers, and then it draws them closer. Who knows? Maybe a bag of pubes on stage at a comedy show in a dimly lit bar will disrupt the regular thought patterns of the dudes in the audience such that they can say, oh, I get it. Even if they've never undergone a bikini wax at the hands of a stern Korean grandma muttering, I've never seen pubes so thick, under her breath. Or maybe not. Like in Jackass, the butt of the joke in my comedy is always mine. And um, what I thought about was the kind of alienation that anybody can undergo when they start to poke holes in in uh, the framework mm -hmm. of society and how we can turn that into uh, a relief for ourselves and for other people who experience it through comedy. Mm -hmm. But like, there's it, there's a weird fine line where you you can just get addicted to the to the showbiz aspect of it you know she talks in there about like going to wrigleyville and putting bags of her pubic hair in guys faces <laughs> to make them uncomfortable the way that she feels uncomfortable and mm -hmm. whether or not that translates i don't know it sounds like she doesn't know either but do you feel that kind of tension walking that weird alienation fine line and um yeah i mean for me um so I was born on a reservation in South Dakota on the Rosebud Reservation. Um, and both my parents are white, and my dad was kind of dodging the draft, working on the reservation, and whatever. Long story. But, um, but basically I grew up in a, a Lakota community where um, Native American humor is just this completely different like, like beast. Um, and it was the framework within which I grew up, right? So um, there's lots of jokes about genocide, lots of jokes about genocide. And, and that w would have been jarring if I'd grown up in sort of standardized Western American culture where we don't acknowledge that we committed genocide. But instead I grew up in the the culture that survived the genocide right so you got to make it funny because you got to talk about it and also like you can't cry about it all the time so so there's this way that the the sense of humor that i grew up with and sort of thinking about um is something that i've always wanted to use to to connect to people as opposed to most western humor that's about shutting people out and sort of proving yourself better or more clever or witty or wacky. Um, and you thinking then, of anybody in particular? Well, Jerry Seinfeld came to mind, but <laughs> <laughs> like I think any sort of stand-up dude. Uh, Sorry, Daniel. probably. We're gonna have Erica Worth on the show, and she has she's Native American. She has two books: um, Crazy Horse's Girlfriend and Buckskin Cocaine. They're uh, Buckskin Cocaine's coming out soon and and there's a lot mm. of that like self-deprecating humor and a lot of drug abuse and alcoholism and and the things that go on but they all 
kind of have it's like you were saying it's just kind of like yes genocide occurred but if we sit and stew in it and whine about it and you know then we're just going to be overwhelmed by it you yeah. know and that's kind of the you get at that theme i think in sherman alexi's work as well you know yeah. it's just the there's kind of this like we got to have a sense of humor otherwise it's gonna you know eat us alive and um you know i've talked about this on the show mike and i are both in re uh, recovery and you know we go to uh I'm not going to say the group, but we go to meetings, you know, and it's very uh, self-deprecating and there's a lot of humor because you laugh about all oh, this tragic stuff that people go through. And I think it's therapeutic. And I, that's one of the, you know, the jokes. This is what I'm getting to yeah. in your title. Um, you know, there's a lot of times when I laughed uh, and the, the essay that Mike was talking about and what the issue was is people are like, why aren't you having babies? And I, I don't have children. I never wanted children. Um, I have a stepdaughter. Um, but you know, it's like, I, I and it, this thought came to my mind. I remember when I was in my 20s, um, you know, it's, I feel weird talking about this, but, you know, I, I, I had an abortion with my ex-wife, and mm -hmm. I, one of my friends told me, he was just like, you're really selfish, you know, for um. having an abortion. I'm like, I'm like in the ravages of alcoholism and like drugs, and you want me to have a kid? <laughs> like, this is, you know, looking back. Yeah. But it's like people, and it, even, you know, talking about the, with the medical things like, you know, looking at you like, oh, she's healthy. What does she need health care mm -hmm. for? Mental illness, all these things, you know, people in recovery. Um, and it's like you can't just necessarily see if somebody's not well. And um, one other thing I, I, I wanted to ask you about, too, is when we were talking about, um, you know, you have the essay about when you're on your deathbed. And I love the ending of it. You know, it's it's got to, I'm going to read it at the end of the show. But, uh, you know capitalism and unwell people don't mix unless it's selling you know pimping drugs on tv i mean you never really see sick people like in a commercial you know it's like you're not wheeling like you know my brother died of als which is a brutal disease you don't see people like wheeling their family members with als in the wheelchair you know going to drink pepsi or whatever yeah and um exception so to the rule that big fungus toe Oh, yes, the fungus toe on Ashland and Archer. I don't know if you're Southsiders, but there's a foot fungus clinic on the corner of Ashland and Archer, and there's a giant photograph of a fungus toe. Oh, the Southside is the best place to live. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really hard to look at. I've been at the bus stop. Like, oh, my God. It's like a train wreck. You can't take your eyes off. But that was one of the things that, you know, I don't know if that was a theme you were intending, but, you know, sick people don't sell, so therefore they don't matter. You know, you... you and the only way you can profit off them is pimping drugs. And I think that's kind of the way that we're going in this country. And I just wanted to kind of see if that thematic element was correct or if I'm just like. Yeah, no, for real. And, and, it, and that becomes a really important issue when we start thinking about how health and wellness operates under sort of a labor model, right? Because people who need to make their own schedules um, and or can't perform on a standardized time model, they're just not going to be as productive as everyone else, right? And so then it becomes this thing of like, if the marker is a certain volume of productivity that's based on healthy but high-functioning, perhaps sort of over-functioning people, maybe fueled by rampant drug and alcohol use throughout culture, um, then even the norm isn't 
achievable for a lot of people, right? So people with health issues are going to sort of fall behind and then they become literally devalued. And then they, in a culture that is exclusively concerned about your potential financial earnings, they don't matter in a, in a fundamental way. And this is actually um, the, the thing about the cultural imperative piece is that I look at women's um, interest in childbirth or not uh, under an intellectual property rights framework. Because when intellectual property rights were sort of first developed, they were very much seen as an alternative to this, to what was understood to be women's sort of natural desire and ability to give birth. And, uh, and all of the language was that intellectual property rights were intended to protect everything under the sun that was not made by humans. And things that were therefore made by humans were sort of, you know, women's domain. Now, this becomes a really big problem when intellectual property becomes just this ever-expanding realm that is intended to raise the profits of the people who own the intellectual property. And so now, yes, you can totally have a baby that is almost entirely owned. There are parts of your body that if you undergo certain medical tests, you no longer own, that they're actually the property of the drug manufacturers. There's, uh, you, you know, hundreds of ways that we're losing at the access to retain intellectual property rights over our own physical bodies. Not that I want to set it up necessarily as like, the, the men are winning or that's the patriarchy or whatever, but that the drive for women to bear children, if it's seen in opposition to that, then isn't about women necessarily wanting to have children, even though they can be kind of cute. It's about <laughs> needing to produce to keep up with this demand that we always have production. Then if the only cultural value people can offer is by producing either high production in the labor realm or a lot of babies, then we have a really messy system where we just have no sort of control over what value means anymore. It's just about what we can, what our capabilities are for making other stuff happen. Guys, we're going to take a small, quick break because in the radio realm, we have to give love to the underwriters. Mike here has a small book that is going to be passed your way. If you guys have any questions for Anne, you can write them in that book, and then we will ask them. If you ask a question... Please put your name so we can give you a little credit. And then we'll be right back in like literally three seconds because of the magic of editing. <laughs> See how that worked? We're right back. So, amazing. Wow. Amazing, isn't it? Time was just compressed there. We just lost, what, three whole minutes that we would have spent hearing about Lumpen Radio? You know, you have an essay in the book, and just before the break, we were talking about labor and capitalism. One of your essays is about Cambodian workers, uh, and you talk about how the production on the floor of a Cambodian factory became so great that workers were literally dying on the factory floor, collapsing well, and, and fainting. Fainting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are some that die, yeah. But 
take us through a little bit of that because that's a, that's a riveting essay in the book that really speaks um, kind of to what end-stage capitalism is because not only did the people there was no there was no end to this the fact that people were passing out did not actually make people stop and and say well we really maybe should not do this in fact it went the opposite direction yeah and i will add that uh, something like 140 workers passed out on the cambodian factory floor yesterday so it's not like nothing about it has stopped it's, it continues what was happening was that um I mean, the history of garment manufacturing in Cambodia is is long and deeply embedded in government weirdness and and corruption, and it's largely about uh, needing to find a way to profit from an otherwise sort of unprofitable realm, which is women in the sort of gender traditional country. So, um, so women and are invited to work in the garment factory throughout the developing world and frankly in the US as well. Um, largely, I mean, the, the argument is that they have smaller hands and can get more stuff done. None of that is true anymore because we have technology that's changed all of that. Um, but mostly because it's much easier to control and silence women than it is to control and silence men who can also run for office. So um, millions of women in Cambodia work in the garment factory. Um, and the government is not interested in creating other avenues of employment for women. And so many of our clothes are made there. They're made in lots of places around the world. But in Cambodia, uh, there's a lot of organizing. There's a lot of thought put into how we can sort of raise wages so that women can actually survive this process that's clearly not going to change. Um, and there's, there's a lot of speculation around exactly how this happened, but around 20, 2009, 2010, um, women in mass numbers just started fainting on the factory floor. Like, like one woman would just sort of fall over and then hundreds more would go. And, and sometimes it would be hundreds, sometimes it would be up to 3,000, really, just fainting at the same time on the factory floor. Production would have to stop because the factory fainted. Um, and this was happening at factory after factory after factory. And it really quickly became clear that there was some kind of epidemic. And the Cambodian government was just like, what's going on? Oh, my gosh, this is crazy. And they consulted experts. And they consulted um, you know, people who sort of detect poisons in the clothes and, and uh, spiritualists. And they discovered that a range of things might have been true. Perhaps was it demons? everyone was haunted. Yeah. It was one of the answers. Uh, perhaps the clothes were emitting some kind of new poison, or perhaps da-da-da-da-da. But the truth is, and this was uh, in a, a different piece that's not in the book that I published on Truthout, is that really it was just this combination of factors, including no access to any of the uh, health requirements that are necessary to have a factory operate, including like a chair, um, women aren't actually making enough money to eat meat that's not rotten. So, of course, they're not going to be able to get through a day. Um, they're really tired from caring for children because there's no child care available in the country for garment factory workers. Uh, they're tired of also being the sort of breadwinners in the house and having no partner to actually sort of support them. Um, but more important, production 
in the factories was increasing so rampantly at the time that women were working and producing seven times as much within the span of like two years as they had two years previous. And they couldn't keep up. So of course they're fainting. And yet we see this happening and there's sort of no realization that actually just production is, is increasing so rampantly that, I mean, the, the producers can't put it out, but also we're not selling it. It's not going anywhere. It's just kind of going into the dump. There was a big article about H&M. When it can't sell all of the clothes, it just cuts through them and puts them in the big dumpster behind the, um, the big flagship Brooklyn, uh, Manhattan store. Um, and so all of this stuff that's being overproduced is that's just being wasted. Which to me is just the most clear sign that we are stuck in this overproduction mode uh, that I can even envision. I think a lot of what we've been talking about and a lot of the, the pieces in the book in Body Horror are um, all battles that are part of a larger political war. Um, and I think what I was trying to get at with that convoluted alienation question related to Sarah's um, piece in the point is she felt a, an ambivalence about what she was doing as a political tool. Mm. Do, you, do you, and it, to me it's like how could you not, you know, it, the people for the most part who are going to listen, you're preaching to the choir because they think like you anyway. And everyone else, you know, is going to say, a bag of pews in my face, this lady's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm running the other way. You know, uh, is it seems really hard, and it also seems like you constantly have to think of new ways to break through to people. I mean, a, a lot of this, to me, is about waking up a little bit. Mm. Um, a lot of Marxist writers from the 70s, talk about you know awakening yeah. uh, consciousness to, to what's going on do you are you constantly trying to think about how to break through or is Not that anymore. something you can't do because you mean, go crazy yeah I would I would say that probably most of my early career was entirely spent on this like obsession with like how do I get people to da 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 and I you know no offense to you people you seem lovely I don't think I care anymore how whether or not I can control you in any way. But I can present a reasonable argument, and I can spend the time to, to do it thoughtfully and to thoroughly, so that if you have questions, you can, well, write them down in the book, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, find a resource that you trust if you develop trust for someone like me, and, and, and we can kind of piece through this stuff together. And I would say, therefore, the one thing in my strategy as a thinker that's really shifted between, um, in the last couple of years, no, in the last 10 years maybe, has been not necessarily, therefore, to try to convince the masses of anything, but to put myself in situations where I am entirely surrounded by people who fundamentally disagree with me on a base level, and seeing if we can find some way of developing a relationship and then seeing if that can go anywhere. 
well, having met you on the show before, I I was reading a there's an essay in the book, and I wanted to ask you a question, but um, there's an essay in the book where uh, fashion models are compared to garment workers in Cambodia, and the question I wanted to ask is if you got any flack from that, um, and then I also just wanted to say, like, when I was reading, sometimes when I read these, I, I like, think of myself like Bill O'Reilly, and I'll be like, you know, this woman in Detroit who got a free house is comparing millionaire fashion models to you know, blah, 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 and it's just, it's kind of fun, um, but they, uh, you know, we're in this, this world that's so polarized now, especially with the current administration, I mean, it's pointless to talk about it, we're in the middle of it, we all know that it exists. The uh, situation. Yeah, you have know. you ever been on, like, a, like a right-wing, you know, radio or anything? This that, isn't like, right-wing radio? No. What am I doing here? <laughs> no, this is very far left. I'm saying, have you ever been on like a right wing radio or like a, you know, an interview of someone that doesn't necessarily have your beliefs? And then the second part of the question is, did you get any flack about the, um, that essay about the fashion models? Yeah. So I have like big stories about both of those. Um, and the, as an invited guest, I'm often invited into situations that, well, for whatever reason, I'm convinced are benign and then turned out to be disasters. And they're often around that question of like, oh, I thought this morning TV show would be fine. And then it's like, really? You thought like a morning talk show with a bunch of like hyper caffeinated weirdos on mainstream television <laughs> is going to be like, hey, awesome. I hate capitalism, too. Let's party. <laughs> No, they're evil, and the, it was t a total nightmare and a total disaster. Um, but uh, most frequently, I am—I uh, <laughs> appear in such media as the object of intense ridicule. Um, I was for a short time a member of an organization based in D.C. called Code Pink, and I was at a protest doing a cheerleading thing once and someone took a picture of me. And um, I have delightful teeth is what I have. And so someone took a picture of me and uh, they it was uploaded onto some website where right-wing people complain about women. And they it was like like 40 pages of what a horrible person with bad teeth that should die and doesn't she have an education her teeth are so bad and also we should rape her the whole thing was just like completely and totally nuts and out of control um and that's that's my experience there okay yeah because you know the it, it is funny yes it is and when, when i said totally right wing radio and i meant like this i didn't mean like this show in particular i meant like a talk show so i mean we yeah. all know that yeah. we're not right wing over here yeah but let me talk let me tell you about the model thing yes because uh, i yeah. think this happened after i saw you guys but i was invited out to a secret uh group of models that are activists uh, did i tell you about that no, no. okay okay so uh, late May, I think, I was invited to speak to a group of um, models and supermodels. And there's a difference. <laughs> wait, wait, what's the difference? Uh, I mean, it's basically like supermodels are the ones that they walk into the room and you're like, oh, you're on like Vogue right now. Um, 
but also they treat each other differently. So like the Coles catalog and Vogue, that's model and supermodel? Pretty so, much. So there's a hierarchy yeah. here. You're yeah. saying there's like a mean girl kind of thing going on? Well, or? it's not even, actually. They're delightful, kind people, which is completely terrifying. As a woman growing up in America, you think that models are going to be mean girls. You think that they're going to be horrible to each other. They are the nicest, kindest people because their entire job is making the photographer and the set designer and the makeup artist happy. Um, and I was not aware then that that would apply to douchebags they'd invited to come and talk to them about capitalism. Uh, but basically, so they invited me to come and they call themselves the Model Mafia. And they're, they're literally amazing. These are women that have been working in the beauty industry for their entire life, since they were teenagers or sometimes younger, and have come to this understanding of the world totally by accident sometimes that happens to align really well with mine. So they invited me to come out and talk to them about my experiences working in the garment industry in Cambodia, but also like what I had seen in interviewing other models who are underpaid, uh, often sexually harassed, surprise, surprise. Um, very frequently, there's a lot of wage theft in the modeling industry. All of these things that directly mirror the same thing that happens in the garment industry, in which case we can take a step back and understand that actually maybe the reason that those labor sectors are all having similar problems is because they're all part of the larger garment industry. Then we can start looking at warehouse manufacturers. We can start looking at people who work in retail. And it's all the same, all across the board. Women are underpaid. They are sort of encouraged to lose weight and stay weak and silent. And this is the garment industry where between one-sixth and one-seventh of the women in the world work. And guess what? They're not earning enough money. So anyway, small rant about the garment industry in general. But the models are completely amazing. And as we were talking about these things that happen in the garment industry and how the industry operates for warehouse workers, et cetera, the models were like having this realization that some of this stuff had happened to them yesterday on a shoot. And some of them, you know, remembered about this thing that happened and started making these connections about like, oh yeah, that guy was really weird and that was uncomfortable and I should have been paid for that job. And that was pretty impressive. So for the most part, actually, I think what people are seeing in that, in, unless they're secretly not telling me anything <laughs> about it, is that those connections are surprisingly solid. Um, it's, of course, weird to be like, models and garment workers well, know, have the same because they don't have the same at all. But We take pride in reading things carefully. You yeah. know? And when I first read your thesis, I'm like, what? And then you know, I read the whole essay and yeah. it made sense. But a lot of people don't read late very carefully in fact we had Mairead Case on last week and you know does she not know how to read no she was no like, she doesn't know how to read at all <laughs> no, weird yeah, she's it's so weird she wrote a book <laughs> you know? yeah, she wrote a book, she wrote a book and she doesn't know how to read it's amazing but Some she was like that. you guys That's read true. my stuff so carefully because I, I brought up great. like color yeah. themes and Mike brought up something from one of her essays and she's like the only person that noticed that was a family member and you guys read very carefully awesome. and I was like well isn't that the point of a book <laughs> show and she's like but people don't like they'll yeah, read my book and you can tell they haven't read it yet yeah. so we take pride we read everything that we have no you guys are great and this is I think I've read this three times now so 
Thank you. You want to go to the you want to go to the yeah. orange book? Yeah. yeah. The orange book, by Let's the way, it. guys. You filled the orange book. This is pretty impressive. Exciting. Yeah, no, it's great. This is great. Is there great. anything personal in there? There's a love note in here. Hello. All right, so uh, I'm going to start at the end. This is actually kind of a cool question. Um, and I don't know who wrote it because they didn't put their name down, so I'm going to call them Fred. Fred says, as automation across industries grows at a rapid clip, do you see any opportunity for women workers to have improved conditions domestically as well as internationally? Well, there are some interesting things happening, um, and and I th think the exciting thing about technology, of course, is that it's often designed to further oppression, and then people see it in action, and they figure out a way to make it better. Um, but stuff like 3D printing technology, which uh, there is some fear that it will actually sort of take over the garment industry and therefore just put women out of work, which would be bad unless we shifted something else up in the uh, in the meantime, does actually present an opportunity for women not to do hatefully undervalued work any longer. How we start to address that in a world where waged labor is the standard isn't clear, but it is definitely a possibility as terms like basic wage and, and living wage become much more frequently uttered, that we can start to imagine a way that actually we do develop a, a basic income and people participate in labor sectors as, as required and or they are drawn to them. Um, so I do see a lot of possibility. I just don't know under this administration what is going to survive. Well, another question from another person that is also called Fred, because they didn't write their name down. There's a debate about gender roles and aptitude that's blown up in the tech community in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Google! And now women are chiming to say they believe that women aren't suited to engineering. Mm. How do we combat uh, stereotyping that is so ingrained, parentheses, seen also in female Trump supporters? <laughs> that's a good question. And... Uh, there's a lot of ways, I think, to, to think about that. One of my current things is that I am hardly in a position to combat anything personally right now. Like, I am almost exclusively focused on my own survival and the survival of the sort of people in my immediate realm. So, so I have to kind of reconfigure how what's possible in that um, and trust in this moment in political history that someone will say something reasonable soon. There are a lot of women in the tech industry that are basically that is, you know, flat out explaining what bunk that is. But we're also... Neko was fired. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, but although there the, are also now WikiLeaks wants to hire him though. Yeah, and and there are a ton of people that are um, writing slightly less unreasonable versions of the same thing that are achieving sort of mainstream popularity. And and we're just in a bad time right now, and I don't know what to do about that, besides the obvious solutions. Jamie, can I just mention something too? Yeah. I think that. You know, the demonization of teachers has always been a thing. You know, they make too much money. To, and this is a largely 
especially early education field, you know, populated by women. My mother was a teacher. Um, I'm a librarian, and you know, men. Most it's becoming there's more men in librarianship now, but it's like they've always attacked teachers and teachers' unions because here is a group of people that have, you know, built up this thing where they can make a living wage and they do a very hard job. You couldn't pay me enough to be a teacher, but that you know that's something you. If you go on any right-wing blog um, and the, any kind of debate about labor or work comes up, the teachers get attacked immediately. And I, and I, I just think it's, you know, it's because it's, it's mostly women. Those in power don't want to see um, you know, people making living wages, and, you know, and then they compare it to like, because unions, it's like communism and all this crazy, ridiculous things when it's just people trying to survive. And I, you know, I think these... Uh, you know, the tech field is, is a newer thing, but it's just kind of like, it's just all the old craps coming to the surface again. You know? Yeah, so, and, and, and it's really hard for me to say, well, we have to just go back and fight these things the same way we've always been fighting them. But I think we just have to have the same battles probably over and over and over. But it's also true that there is a much larger vocabulary now around things like care work and emotional labor that allow us to understand that women as a class are often sort of being devalued by design. And the, I mean, the, the conversation around like teachers' labor issues here in Chicago is much more advanced than it is in a place like Detroit. But in a place like Detroit, we can also see that there's a very strong anti-intellectual bent to that, that people who are educating and who provide knowledge, and this includes librarians, are sort of evil in some fundamental way and don't deserve support. I've and often wondered why the right wing doesn't go after libraries, because we take your tax dollars and give people free stuff. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, like a, it's, it's a socialist job as it gets, but... And it, the reason is because everybody uses them, you know, and that's and not everyone uses public schools and everything. But well, no. but that's that's not entirely true. Libraries have been attacked and books have been banned and libraries are an essential public space. But in many communities, libraries are being shut down. And it's yeah, ostensibly true. for budget reasons. But it's it speaks to the more anti-education, anti-intellectual movement that we're seeing in this this country overall, which, if we're honest about it, has long historical ties. I mean, this isn't something that just came up overnight, but um, yeah, for sure, and and I think that we can see it um, more clearly in combination with with other matters. There is a really interesting again debate in Detroit right now about sort of homeowners' rights and who has the right to own property versus who has the right to rent. and And there's a long-standing mistrust of renters in Detroit, which is kind of fascinating, which relates directly to the fact that most of these space in the city is given over to single-family standalone houses. Um, but part of the thing about renters is that, you know, it's students and it's professors and it's people who just come through town. They don't know how to take care of property, but they're also just thinking all the time. And that there is sort of an, an economic but also like a community angle to these things is something that we should probably think through as anti-intellectualism grows sort of throughout the nation on an almost daily basis. The, the tech-related <coughs> question makes me think of the fact that a lot of this, a lot of debates in general um, are taking place 
on the computer now. Mm. And I've been accused of living under a rock more than once. But uh, it seems to me that stuff like this, this is a impressive turnout to me. Thank you, everybody, yeah, for thank coming. You. Thanks, for everyone, coming. for coming. Um, stuff like this is is the solution. Because I don't, I, don't, I don't get this even close to every day. Yeah. Not even once a year. I mean, is, is this kind of thing common? Do you think... Um, have you seen any movements to have more town hall type bookstore discussions, p- public space discussions, instead of just yelling at each other online? I mean, there was there was talk of it, right? Or really early on, after the inauguration in particular, right? There were people that were like, "We have to get together and, and throw r- radical dinner parties," and I never got invited to I one. Invited I mean, maybe either. people. Well, we live in an era of Facebook activism, and they you know, people yeah. feel like, oh, if I post this on Facebook, I'm doing something, but you're not. You know, you yeah. have to get out on the street. You have to get out and talk to people. You have to get out and do things. And you know, unless we're in the Matrix. Unless you're in the Matrix, but you know, it's like I not everything, but like a lot of organizing, a lot of protests has become very lazy. You know, I mean, aside from like. You know, Black Lives Matter or, uh, you know, the Occupy movement. But it's just like, you know. Well, all the BYP 100 stuff here in Chicago is really impressive. I don't know what that one is. Oh, Black Youth. Okay. Oh, yeah. But a lot of people, you know, those groups aside, it's just like, I'm going to post this, you know, petition to send to the congressman. They don't read those, you know. Well, I I think it speaks to the the alienation part. Yeah. I know for me, you could accuse me of it every day. Of, of not speaking up when an, a lot of people think I should because it's alienating. It's alienating to call people out on their BS, on their racist or misogynistic views that are subliminal to them or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in their subconscious. Mm-hmm. And it's online is the easy way to vent that stuff. Yeah. You don't have to feel that alienation. You don't have to feel ostracized or outside of society. But you've done the work to be on a radio show where you're talking to a group of people and it's going right. on the air. You're not posting on Facebook like, people are racist. Right. No. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that I think that's the reason people do it. But um, I'm thankful for, for a book like yours and an essay like Sarah's, a magazine like The Point, because it um, it makes that alienation less scary. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I like what you said about being preparing yourself. Because, you know, maybe none of this is going to work, and, and maybe we are going to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. But... We're doing it together. <laughs> we're doing it together. <laughs> um, Flame and fire like you've never seen before. And on that note, we are actually out of time oh. for our I-94 broadcast. So, first of all, I want to thank everybody who came out. We had a full house thank tonight. You thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Anne. A round of applause for you guys. Second of all, I want to thank our star of the evening, Anne Elizabeth Moore. Please give up for her. is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. Central. This episode was recorded at Pilsen Community Books in front of a live audience. Our special guest was Anne Elizabeth Moore, author of Body Horror. This episode originally aired on August 13, 2017. 
I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, intro and promo voiced by David Green, with music by Lori Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive.